This is Buffalo, What's Next? I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. And I'm Dave Debo. If ever there was an issue that demands more discussion now, the racist massacre at Tops Friendly Markets on May 14th is um, it. You know, America has a long, deep, rich history of racism brutalizing black communities. But where does it go from here? What does our community need? We must work and teach our children. What issues just aren't being addressed? As long as we keep doing the same thing, we're just sitting ducks for the next mass shoot. That's all you can say. This is a new program. Every weekday, we'll set aside this hour to hear from the community about issues that can no longer be held back. We need to make a concerted effort in our nation, in our institutions, and yes, in our families. And this is Dave Debo. Today on the program, we're talking about health and the community, specifically some of the disparities that are out there, specifically some of the solutions that are out there. We have several guests today from the Community Health Center of Buffalo. Up next, Dr. Kenyani Davis, MD, with Jay Moran, also Rasan Delane. But first, Community Health Center Executive Director Levon Ansari is here. Dr. Ansari, welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's talk, and, and we can get eventually... Throughout the course of this hour, we can eventually get into the idea of health disparities. We can eventually get into some of the um, some of the problems in the community. And I know you touch on that, too. But with you, I specifically wanted to talk about the health care delivery system. CHC is a community based system Mm -hmm. different from, I think, what people perceive generally as health care where a patient is hooked up with a provider mm-hmm. in a direct kind of way. Um, let's talk about some of the systemic issues that are there with the way healthcare care is delivered in the United States. Um, it is not necessarily the kind of community-based system that you operate. Yes. So let's start with the fact that the health centers, which is what Congress talks about when they say health centers, it's a comprehensive model that actually was born out of Mississippi. And that it's designed to be comprehensive. So we do adult medicine, pediatrics, behavior, health, um, dental. So we address the services to the community in one, one stop. But when you talk about systemic racism in the healthcare system, you're talking about a system of 400 years. Let's be blunt. Do you think that the existing standard healthcare system in America is racist? Yes, in a sense that we have systemic racial practices, right? So what we need to do is start looking at racist practices. Therefore, when you're looking at that, we have to then look at what are the systems that we have in place that will cause you to get better care than me as an African-American. Okay. Let's talk more about that. When you say there are systems in place that have a problem, what are they? Okay. Let's start with COVID. When COVID hit, who got the, who got the, the, the immunizations first? Individual providers and eventually drugstores? Yes and no. What happened was, what happened to the African-American community? Gotcha. We got it last, right? It was not a plan for us to get it first. So even systemically, if you look at how they were going, we're delivering the immunizations, you had to get on a computer. 
Mm. Right. And you had to. So you're looking at all through the system. First of all, we had to fight to get the immunizations. We mean in community clinics like yours. The the health centers. And then we had to then figure out how we get it to them. And enough of it. So COVID was a prime example of what systemic racism looks like. Right. We didn't have we couldn't test because we didn't get it. They didn't have enough tests. They didn't go to us first. And so the system should have went to the ones that most needed it first because the ones, the people that are most affluent were going to get it anyway. But it worked in the reverse. So what happened? We died disproportionately. And the community model can solve that. Well, I think it's one way to look at servicing the community. And let me just give you an example. Primary care is not not looked at as a, a specialty. Like you would say, your surgeons or your cardiologists. Mm-hmm. However, we are specialists in in community-based care. Okay. So when I say that, is that we take care of human beings from from the cradle to the grave. When you go to a specialist, is as needed. Even so, a primary care physician, as needed. No, you should see your primary care annually as or, a regular thing. As a regular thing for prevention and wellness. But the system is not necessarily designed that way. I think we're getting there, but we're not designed to actually be prevention and wellness. We actually are sick model. Yeah. And I probably am wrong here, so help me out. Your clinic, I imagine, is not the kind of place where someone has, um, where it is more drop-in, where it is more sick-oriented. Do you have those same kind of relationships that most people have with their primary or is it a matter of eventually convincing someone they need to see a doctor and eventually having them come in because you are there in the community? So let me just put it to you this way. There's, a, there's different approaches to community-based medicine. But let me just say how we approach yeah, let, it. Yeah, I was going to say Here's the difference. Here's the difference. Let, let's talk about your structure. My structure is you have providers that feel they serve the community. Okay. But my approach is, or our approach is, that we are the community. So my approach, when 514 happened, I took the excellence out of my organization, my MDs, my nurses, who I had those resources, and I brought them to the community. I didn't wait for the community to come to us because we are their community. They're, we are the mothers, the sisters the family members, because our health center is 2.8 miles from tops. And I've heard you say this before. Uh, your your mandate is to exactly that, um, be where the people are. Correct. But that doesn't mean because I serve the community as a primary care provider that I go to where the community is. Our, our approach is to go where the community is, as well as have the, have the bricks and mortar. All right. Now, talk to me about it. Typical, if there is indeed a typical, and I know that that's often a tough word because the world is not a bunch of monoliths, but uh, talk to me about a typical patient. Is it someone in the community who really needs health service and just drops in on you guys occasionally, or is it akin to the kind of relationship that people have with their primaries? It's a combination of both. Okay. Right? And it's building trust in the community. So our community is really based off of trust. And you have to also remember, we don't necessarily have a whole generation like other groups of doctors and nurses in our families, but we do have them. 
So then us, this is why it's important for us to actually be out in the community because they get to see people that look like them that have the credentials to actually serve them in a clinical way. You've been peeking at my notes. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was exactly that, the the reluctance for African-American people and some other communities to engage with the healthcare system, that lack of trust. We can talk about Tuskegee. We can talk about uh, historic roots there. But typically, there's distrust. But, but everyone has to understand that we are built on a system of distrust and racism. So we all collectively have to work together as human beings to be able to conquer that. What do you mean when you say we are built that way? We've been in, we had enslavement for 400 years, right? And we've been 200 years, we, you know, we're still sitting in it. It's and still systemic. Right. It's systemic, but it's also you're still benefiting and we still are struggling to get there. Okay. How can reform change that? What, if, if you had the magic wand, and some of it is the idea of community health centers, I understand. If you had a magic wand, what kind of change would you implement? The change we will make a, implement is to have each one of us, where we sit, what we can control is understand our racial practices. Racial practices. We got all kind of laws that tell you not to discriminate. That doesn't mean yeah. we don't do it. We are doing it. So now what do you do? You look, in, you look within the system that you're working in and to, best, to see how you best can look at what racial practices and barriers that you have that you cannot do. And this goes back to what you said about COVID, access. Um, if I have to go online and book my uh, vaccine online, that's eliminating a segment of the population. You're talking about our seniors that live alone, don't have computers. How are they supposed to get through? So no one thinks about those things. How do you counteract that? Did you do outreach to seniors in the communities, knock on doors even? We most certainly do. And we continue to go into their homes and give them their shots. We continue to go in. And the the way you do that is to build your, your, your cultural capital in the communities so their daughters call you. Or their sons call you, say, can you come take care of my mom? And so that but that's because we have the relationships and they know who you are. So they will feel comfortable reaching out to you. Absolutely. So not only is it just um, a community thing, but it's also personal. To what degree does cultural resonance play a role? Um, I'll I'll be blunt. If I'm a black person, I'm probably going to be more comfortable with a black doctor. Correct. Well, yes. Well, one of the reasons for that is because we don't have to do do the uh, we understand the cultural codes. I don't have to explain to you, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, certain things that I would have to explain to someone that is not in my culture. All right. How do you um, transcend the reluctance? Educate. We have to educate one another, but also work together. The only way you get to know one another is we work together. Dr. Levon Ansari is here from the Community Health Centers of Buffalo. Uh, throughout the program today, we're going to be talking about health care with representatives from CHC. Tell me how things changed after the shootings. Things and I know that's a broad question, but in terms of health care. Well, things have changed because it raised the, the it actually gave a real picture to what racism looks like. 
because we got murdered because of what my I look like. Yeah. So now there's this aha moment that people go, that's what racism looks mm-hmm. like. Because it was intentional to come and find somebody that looks like me to kill me. I talked uh, right before Juneteenth with uh, Jomo Okono, uh-huh. and he tried to make the case that um, about a year ago, most white people had their day of reckoning when they saw the knee on George Floyd's neck. Not only was that a pervasive image, but it was an image that came into their homes to the point that they couldn't deny it. Uh, for him, he said that was kind of an inflection point. If that's the case... Does tops become less significant or is it just another iteration that Western New York cannot ignore? The one thing we need to get out of, and and this is from me working with the tops associates, is the notion that um, black people are conditioned to have violence. That is a crazy notion. And so what people do, oh, you know, that's in that community and they are used to that. Nobody gets used to being shot at. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or to feel that you're not safe. That's just part of humanity. You're safety. Mm. So the thing that is that we need to understand that the massacre that occurred in Tops has not happened to black people since Rosewood. That you take out 10 people, you injure 13, take out 10 and terrorize the rest of the community. Mm. That's what terrorism looks like. That's what domestic terrorism looks like. And one of the things that has changed from this incident that we are going to be trained in domestic terrorism. We are not trained in it. Medically, we're not trained in it. Community-wise, we're not trained in it. And people forget we're actually a very loving community. There's no way that a black man that that with that um, could have come up like the white guy that came and shot us to go into Williamsville and not get the police not called. Oh, sure, sure. Do you take any solace from the argument that uh, he's not from here, that this is not necessarily our community? Absolutely Um, not. Tell me why. The reason why is because he didn't do it alone. Social media, he had an audience. So we all should be concerned that this is a national problem. He came in with a camera on his head to to actually do to show it how sick is that and you think that what and people would think that that's normal other than the mental health implications and we can go there in a minute what change have you seen in health care in wake of this shooting i think we're becoming more apparent of what domestic terrorism looks like and more prepared we got to get more prepared of what what collective trauma looks like. Collective trauma. We're all in active PTSD. How does that hit the road, um, where, where the rubber meets the road? Um, what does that look like in the community? Are you seeing more PTSD cases? Absolutely. So we already have trauma with our communities that we serve. But then you put this on top of it. So we now have double that trauma. Because we still live in trauma every day. And in some ways it was a double whammy. COVID and then a shooting. Absolutely. So we got we went through PTSD with COVID because we were dying disproportionately. We're all trying to learn something to save our lives. But here's the difference. The difference is um, COVID was nature. This was man. Mm. 
That's okay. the difference, right? We can know, you know, we know medicine. We understand medicine. We know what the human body can do, and we got history of what we can do medically. But when a man comes to just kill you for the way you look from from some type of ideology of hate, what that's two different things here. Then let's bring it back to my initial question, the idea that uh, the healthcare delivery system in the United States is racist. What needs to change? What does that change look like that brings about that solves some of the problems that you're dealing with? We need to start with our schools because they're learning how to do medicine from the schools, right? And we also need to look at the systems, how we are implementing medicine, how we're implementing care, and understand who we are. So most of the time, people not thinking about the um, how we're looking at the person in front of us. We just think we're treating them but there's there you have you have your own consciousness you have your own way of looking at things a cultural component there you go all right should there be more operations that look at it like yours uh is is there any obstacle the way the way healthcare delivery is set up is there any obstacle to having more chcs out there sure money Right. That's why because I thought you'd pri- say. That's, that's why I asked. Because primary care is not looked at. We I'm t- we should be paid a lot of money, but we're not. And it's because we need a lot more research in primary care and its importance. If you look at it, the cancers get it. The cancers get the research, all, all of those specialties. But that's not where most people are. Yeah. Right. This goes back to what you said earlier, that, that you look at yourself as especially just like a cardiologist or a rheumatologist we, or whatever. That's right. We also look at ourselves as the foundation of health care because you don't get to your specialty, your specialist, without your primary care provider. Give me a little history. How was it that you folks were able to get off the ground and what would it take to replicate that other than just money? Well, actually, um, it's a business. Right. And and just like any other business, you need to figure out how your profit and losses. But the thing with us is that we have to take you regardless of your ability to pay. Mm. So that's a different. That's why I'm saying community based care is a specialty because everyone doesn't want. To. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> right. But we still have to take care of the bills. We still have to take care of our families we still, because people really don't understand that health centers are also um, economic engines. We actually employ people. <laughs> sure. Um, federally, you get uh, is most of your subsidy for those who can no longer afford. Is that federal? Yeah, we get a federal portion, right? However, that doesn't take care of half of what we need to do. So if you look at other providers, they have one thing they may have to do for the set, for the money they get. We got about 10 things we have to do for that money. All right. Uh, in our closing minute here, then it sounds like you're saying the deck is stacked. Yeah, but you know what? I'm never going to give up. <laughs> and you're going to always fight for all that is good. And we will keep keep chopping away at it until we get what we need. You're optimistic? Absolutely. All right. Thanks so much for your time. And thank you for having me. Dr. LaVon Ansari is with the, she's the executive director of the Community Health Center of Buffalo. We're going to continue this topic in just a minute or two. Jay Moran is standing by with Dr. Kenyani Davis, MD. She's also with the Community Health Center. And Rasan Delane is here. An interesting discussion. Stay with us. Much more to come on Buffalo's What's Next.
Support for WBFO, your NPR station, comes from our members and from Elderwood. From the anticipated to the unexpected, change is part of life. Elderwood's team of professionals combine compassion with a wide range of resources to help seniors and their families navigate life's transitions. Featuring independent living, assisted living, and subacute rehab, skilled nursing, and more. At Elderwood, we know the way. More at Elderwood.com. Stream the best from Buffalo Toronto Public Media's YouTube channel. If Our Water Could Talk. Erie County Fair. Two Frederick Law Olmsted documentaries. And so much more to watch. The very best of WNED-PBS, now available on YouTube. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And good morning. Welcome back to Buffalo. What's next? And we continue now with Dr. Kenyani Davis, Chief Medical Officer, Community Health Center, Buffalo. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am well. Thank you. And thank you for joining thank us. You for and also, uh, Rasan Delane, Project Coordinator for Health Equity at the Community Health Center, of Buffalo, and also Executive Director of the Collaboration on Poverty Elimination. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to start off. We're going to just kind of stay on the medical concept here for a little bit, just doing a little research and came across a, uh, an article regarding uh, maternal um, uh, uh, mortality rates. And in the article, it's a great article from the New York Times, very long article, but I just want to pull out a quote here, and I'm going to just start it off as a, a conversation starter. Societal and systemic racism can create a kind of toxic physiological stress. Can you expand on that? Oh, my God. This is my most favorite topic in the world. All right. Um, Absolutely. So what you're talking about is what we call allostatic load, um, or when you take that concept of what stress does to the body physiologically and through the DNA, it takes you to the work of Dr. A.T. Geronimus with maternal mortality and weathering. And basically what you're saying is that all of those different microaggressions, stresses that minority populations experience actually accelerate aging of your DNA. And why that's important is because when your your DNA has a it has a half life, it has a lifespan. And when those things start to deteriorate, it produces chronic diseases, diabetes, hypertension. It can also have things such as depression, alcoholism, and stuff like that. But what that in return does is when you take your your black women and compare it to white women, your black women's DNA is seven and a half years older than their white counterparts. So if you have two women who are 40, chronologically, they've both had the same birth. They've been on this earth for 40 years. The black woman's DNA actually looks like a 47 and a half year old. So it plays into health outcomes. Absolutely. So if so what happens is you're going to see chronic diseases earlier in particular populations versus versus other. And some of those things they cut across socioeconomic status. So you can't financially get your way out of it. Uh, it actually starts to increase more the more money that that you make. That's an interesting part yeah. of it because I, perhaps and we're, that's what this is all about trying to clarify misconceptions but the idea that well it must be stressful to be poor, mm-hmm. but that's really not what we're getting at here. Yeah, no, it's, it's stressful to be black. Mm. You know, I think, you know, if I can be if I can be honest, from the time you wake up 
to the time you go to bed, you have to be aware and conscious. So for instance, as a physician, right, I have to be aware of my tonation and how I talk, because if not, I can be conceived as an angry black woman. I don't know if my other counterpart has to do that. Um, Those little things are all the subconscious things that happen in your mind before you even respond. I have to be mindful of how my face looks in a meeting, right? I have to be mindful of, you know, if, you know, did I, was I too assertive? Was I too aggressive? And there are some things that are, are unique to be just being a woman, but then there's a thing called intersectionality. And so when you have multiple different vulnerabilities, it makes you more vulnerable to things. And so intersectionality would be being a black female, you're, you're not just woman, but you're also of a minority category. And those intersectionalities play a huge part, not only in health and how you're treated. One of the most dangerous places for a woman to be is in the healthcare setting. You know, Rasan, you know, let's take it on, on that mental health level just a little bit more. Sure. That idea of just being stressful, being black. I mean, do you find that, I mean, I, you can talk about your personal mm-hmm. situation, of course, but the people that you talk to as well. I mean, do you, is that, is it verbalized in that fashion? Well, I think it depends on who you're talking to. And what I mean by that is if Dr. Davis and I are having a conversation, we can look at each other and know exactly what we're feeling or we're thinking uh, without having to speak about it. And that's sort of the collective experience of people of color sometimes is that um, we're not we're not all the same. We don't have all the same experiences of race and racism, but there is a uniqueness about um, and a and a and really a um, a strain that comes with uh, with being a person with with black and brown skin, because it's the first thing that people see when you walk in a room. So no matter how educated you are, no matter, you know, your economic status no matter what you went through that day, um, you're still a black person when you walk in a room. And I tell the story sometimes of um, of being a college student here locally and um, being very um, proud of being a college student, but also hearing the voices of my parents who prepared me for what it meant to be a black man in this country. Mm. And so they would tell me things about and stories of their experiences and stories of their ancestors experiences and my aunts and my uncles. And, you know, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of stress, really, that just came with just living, walking through life on a day to day basis. And Dr. David Williams, who um, who is a researcher out of Harvard uh, Public School of Health, uh, has done extensive research around daily discrimination, everyday discrimination, and he connects it to health and the health impact um, to people of color. And so I think, you know, there's a lot that we as people of color and black people in particular deal with on a day to day basis that that um, it's hard to really articulate because it's just so complex. Certainly. And and to add to the complexity, let's talk about then. Uh, the stress of being black in Buffalo. Um, it's it's different, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're from Rochester, Absolutely. but you've spent a lot of time here, went mm-hmm. to UB. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Davis, you're from Arizona originally, yeah. but you've been here about, about 10 years oh, or God, so. Yes, I've yeah. been here since 2012. Yeah. It's... I got to tell you, as a transplant, I, I feel like I'm an honorary Buffalonian now. So, like, I can I can say that, right? You cheer for the Bills. Here I, I, oh, fine. okay, yeah, there you go. Let's go Buffalo, All right, right? Thank you. Um, <laughs> so... I, being from the West Coast and being from, from Phoenix, coming here was very interesting. You guys have a hard line on Main Street. Redlining is so pervasive here. Mm. Um, 
And it's on both sides. It's not just, you know, and I'll never forget when I was in residency, so there was a place, I want to say it was Vera's, Vera's restaurant or a pizzeria that the people were telling me that the pizza was really good and that I should go there. I'm like, okay, great. Yeah, you know, if I ever get a second off, I'm going to try and go there. <laughs> and I remember I remember one of, one of the workers, um, one of the black workers was like, oh, no, we don't go over there. And I'm like, we don't go over there. I go wherever I want to go, right? <laughs> and I'm like, if the food is good, I'm going to go wherever I want to go. But it was my first time realizing that it is on both sides. There's, there's this learned behavior that mm. people are supposed to stay in this geographical location. Now, whether that's just because it's, it's from a safety perspective or right. what, but it was the first clear understanding that people don't journey outside of past this main, this main street. And I got to tell you, I don't know what's being done to break down those geographical walls. We don't necessarily have that in Arizona. We have the haves and the have-nots, right? Mm. And it's it's a it's a money thing. You can go wherever you know wherever you want. But I think that really is going to hold Buffalo, but you know Buffalo back. People know this exists. Absolutely, right? they do. Absolutely, they do. And it's and it's it's very, um, it's so ingrained that. I mean, I've talked to people, some of the folks um, that I talked to um, after 514 um, would describe to me just just never having been outside of um, that area, you know, their neighborhood. And it wasn't because they couldn't get there. It wasn't because, um, you know, there was some some physical barrier. It was the level of safety that they felt within their own community. And I think... You know, conversely, you know, folks who live in predominantly white neighborhoods, you know, may or may not. They may feel safe in their neighborhoods and it could be rooted in the fact that we don't see each other. We don't talk to each other. And it's also rooted in racism. Absolutely. It's also rooted in differences. It's also rooted in all of the isms that really create these categories. And so everyone sort of stays in their category. Everyone kind of, you know, uh, interacts with the people they feel most comfortable with. And all that does is recreate bias, recreate discrimination, recreate sexism, racism, homophobia, all of those things, because we stay in our, in our safe spaces. And so I think, you know, part of the work is figuring out how uh, we uh, step outside of our own comfort zones you know, we, we start to think about, you know, how can we build bridges with other communities? Um, but also, I think it's about taking a higher level of risk. And what I mean by that is that people who have power or privilege have to learn how to take more risk to benefit others as opposed to um, kind of sitting in their own comfort. And I think that's part of the change. That's uh, you're, you're taking me into a lot of different places <laughs> in this conversation. Um, and I guess I just want to get this out there because as we were talking about safety. Right. You're talking about the safety of the community. Add to the fact that what happened on May 14th was a white supremacist coming from out of town to come into that neighborhood and shoot 10 black people mm. to death. I mean, it's beyond complexity. Mm. What are people saying? What, what, how, how are they coming to grips with this? I mean, again, you know, we were talking about this separation that we all have here in Buffalo, now add this whole element to this this hateful portion of existence that came into this neighborhood that everybody generally felt pretty safe about, and now it, this happens. I mean, what what are people saying? I mean, you were at the scene, both of you were at the scene right after right after the uh, the shootings. What were people saying about it? The the people is us, 
right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's I think that's the the thing that I've been very clear about is that there is there is power in the tongue, right? And and how we how we say it. And early on, when people kept saying this community, this community, that was our community. Mm-hmm. Whether you live there or not, that was our community because this was an outsider who came into our Buffalo. Mm-hmm into your fourth bedroom or your third bedroom of your house and desecrated it, right? So people are still upset. I am still upset. And when you have repeated traumas that that go on, and and, and Rasan can talk about kind of complex traumas and, and what that is, Every day, you're talking about a community that already feels as if they're not a part of the solutions, hmm. uh, a forgotten community, a community where they have been screaming at the top of their lungs that they just need the basic necessities. And what they're asking for are the basic necessities that other people ask for as a requirement. Right. So let that sink in. So they were just asking for a grocery store in the neighborhood so that they can actually cook so that when I tell them that their hemoglobin A1C is out of control because they got diabetes and they should eat better, they can do that. Hmm. Where I live, there's about seven different grocery stores within walking distance and I don't even cook. (laughs) So I mean, make that make sense. But people are still angry. And I got to tell you, um, I had a patient yesterday who was already struggling with anxiety and and grief, who had experienced prolonged grief. And then all she kept talking about was tops. And then this tops Mm. happens. And Mm. then my father goes to that tops. And she wasn't anywhere by it. But she's like, my father goes to this tops. So now I'm having dreams about my father dying. Mm. This, so we're not talking about individual treatment here. You're talking about community-wide mm. treatment, which looks different. People are still angry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the the trauma um, part of this is so um, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just so uh, powerful. Mm-hmm. And, and what I – what I mean by that is is there's typically um, three kind of umbrella buckets of trauma. So there is um, complex trauma, there is um, acute trauma, and then there's chronic trauma. So acute trauma um, is really about like a singular incident. Chronic trauma is really about um, kind of ongoing, repeated um, incidents. It's domestic violence is sort of an example of that. And then complex trauma um, is really about uh, cultural trauma, intergenerational trauma. Um, it's about really looking at trauma in a way that is embedded in people's bodies, minds, spirits, all of those things. There's also another type of trauma, and I'll tell a brief story about it. It's called sanctuary trauma. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was recently, over, fa- other f- over the Father's Day weekend, um, I was raised in Rochester, New York, and I went to I was raised in the oldest black church in Rochester, New York, which is Memorial Amy Zion Church. And um, my father was getting a Man of the Year award on Father's Day. He didn't even know that he was getting it. So it was a beautiful, beautiful day. And um, what really darkened that day for me, and I'm getting a little emotional about it, but was the fact that um, they had to have security in the church. They have cameras in the church. They have armed people in the church. And I remember hearing my father talk about how this church, my church that I grew up in, is a target because it's the oldest black church in Rochester. And so this is the this is the stuff that black people live with that is about generations, that is about, you know, just not being able to feel safe in places that are supposed to be safe. You know, when when Uvalde happened, I mean, I had to. 
I mean, my children getting on the bus. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Did you have a hard time, too? Oh, my God. I mean, I I was going to keep them home from school that whole week. I really was. But my point is, is that these layers of trauma, right, that are situated in um, really in racism, in marginalization, in, you know, extreme domestic terrorism that targets you know, marginalized groups of people that go specifically to areas. That's what this act was. And so now what we have is a whole community of people that are feeling unsafe in the safe spaces. And that is something that I don't know how we heal from. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to get there. I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm an optimist. Um, but it's just something that we really have to be aware of when we start talking about moving forward mm-hmm. is really centering, you know, the trauma experience and how to grow and heal from that. We're talking on uh, Buffalo What's Next with Dr. Kenyani Davis, Chief Medical Officer, Community Health Center of Buffalo, and uh, Rasan Delane, Project Coordinator for Health Equity for the Community Health Center of Buffalo, and also Executive Director of the Collaboration on Poverty Elimination. Again, the, the conversation's going at a, a fast pace here towards some different things, but I don't want to let this pass. You talked, Rasan, about taking risks. If mm-hmm. this is ever going to change, if this type of segregation, this this reality that's in Buffalo and everywhere, but we're, we're going to focus on this community, mm-hmm. taking risk. What does that mean to you? What, do, what what do you see about about that in terms of what you think people who have that privilege or power right. need to do in terms of taking risk to make this better? Well, I think it's it when we think about the historical racial residential segregation in, in Buffalo in particular. Um, we're talking about white men with economic privilege who created laws and systems that have reinforced and supported this over time. And so when we talk about taking risks, I think we have to be explicit about who we're, who we're talking about that need to take the risk. And so, yes, it is people with power. Yes, it is people with privilege. Yes, it is people with money. But it also is very specifically uh, white folks who need to be able to say, I'm willing to maybe give up some of my economic privilege or my political privilege or my position in my in my organization because I'm going to take a stance on anti-racism. I'm going to take a stance on health equity. I'm going to take a stance on black maternal health outcomes. You know, the these are these are the risks that I think need to happen. So if the money or the donation that you were going to send this way needs to go this way, that's the risk. Um, and so I think, you know, there's there's action that's happening and there's a lot of allies and people who are well intended. Um, but there's a lot of risk that I think folks have to be willing to take that are going to benefit the other and not themselves. Dr. Davis, what do you think about that? My goodness. Oh, this is a loaded topic today. We need <laughs> we know all kinds of time in the world. <laughs> I think we brought the right two I, people I here. Listen, we could talk all day about this. Um, I think it's a very uh, poignant point that he that he made. I want to take you to a um, it was a body of research in a term called the zero sum game. Have you ever heard of the zero sum? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the zero yes. sum game, right? Yeah. So with this, notice me taking notes. yeah zero sum game, right? <laughs> so actually, Heather McGee did an amazing job in her book, and if you haven't read it, you absolutely should because it's going to talk about all the topics that we talked about in a very clear cut way. Um, it's about thinking about draining of the pool. Right. So when you think about, you know, we had pools, you know, all across the nation for that were community wise pool, beautiful Mm -hmm. pools. But the minute we had to desegregate those pools, they said, you know what, instead of sharing in this privilege, we're going to drain those pools. Mm -hmm. And then what ended up happening was you ended up having a lot of these suburb suburban places or your suburban homes put pools in their backyards. So what does that mean? 
it's that notion of the zero-sum game, right? That if you win, I lose, right? So race is a social um, construct. It really means nothing. The fact that you're black, I'm black, you're white, it doesn't mean anything. We assign meaning to it. It's the same thing about money, right? Um, a $1 bill and a $5 bill and a $20 bill is all the same. It's green paper. But we assign a monetary value to it. And when you do social stratification, you stratify people based on, on, on different things. We usually do it based off of money, mm-hmm. off of class, off of race. It's the belief systems of the society that holds that together. In America, we have a systemic racism. And those belief systems is what holds it, is what holds it together. There's a, what we call a white racial framework that's normal. Everything is compared to the normalcy. So when you think of normal, right? So, right. I mean, you can't see me, but I have braids. At one point, that was not normal. It was considered mm. not professional, right? Because it's not a part of the, the white racial framework, the normalcy. But we have to, we have to debunk that zero-sum game, that, that equality feels like oppression to some people. Mm. So just the color of your skin allows you to enter into what we call a social contract. The privileges will be bestowed upon you because of your skin color. So sometimes... Whether it's a, a financial thing or anything, if you have the right complexion for the protection, we call it, mm-hmm. then you got it. <laughs> can I say that? You can. Can I say that? Okay, because I thought we was having real conversations that, today, that's right? That's what it is. We're doing this, right? <laughs> so all, so all I'm, by all means. <laughs> so all, you know, so all I'm saying is that when you when you think about those risks that you know that Rasan was talking about it's being very intentional you know any all my nfl people you know the the rooney rule being very intentional the truth is is resources are great to do the money right but i want you to i want you to ask i'm going to i'm going to take i'm going to get a, a black head coach or you know i'm going to i'm going to you know get a black executive positions of power influence things that's what you should do. So I come from a world of academia. It takes a minority, a minority professor, if you go from like an assistant professor to get to an associate professor, five to seven years longer than their counterpart. So the risk that I would be thinking about is being very intentional about those decisions of influence and power. It's just my thoughts. I like uh, what we're hearing so far. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, and let's, uh, I want to go back then to something you said earlier about, okay, so now you're the doctor walking into the office and yeah. you're, you're, you're addressing your patient, and yet you feel that you know that you have to, how am I appearing? Right. Now, this has got to be incredibly complex for a doctor because on one side, you are the authority figure, yeah. right? Yeah. But then you have this other reality in mm-hmm. your mind about, well, I can't come on too strong. Right. right. How do you how do you uh, deal with that? I got to tell you, after doing this for 10 years, I had to shed I had to shed that because mm-hmm. it was killing me. It was killing me on the inside. You know what I mean? The the thought and so there's a thing called a minority tax. And mm-hmm. so what that minority tax is is that there's a lot of pressure put on minorities um to kind of be the voice of, you know, uh, of the entire I mean, it's like they, they treat us like a homogenous group, right? right? right. We're all one, right. but everybody else can be heterogeneous, right? right? Um, but I, I had to let that go because it, it started to complicate the the, the interaction. Mm-hmm. 
right? And, and I, I had to come to the, the realization that, you know, I am who I am. You know, I will continue to care for the, the flock that God has entrusted me to, to take care of. And that's it. You know, I'm for some, um, I'm not for others. But there was a period of time where it was like I had to be a little more overly mm. pleasant, right? Um, the code switching, wow. mm-hmm. right? The code switching, make, you know, make sure I speak the king's English, right? Mm-hmm. So that they know that I'm educated, right? <laughs> right. But I got to tell you, what was always interesting was that I've, I've watched, you know, for my counterparts, I would introduce myself as, hi, I'm Dr. Davis. And they'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, hey, Kenyani, we're not friends. Like, but even though, like, you are Dr. Davis, right? But they wouldn't do that to my counterparts. And like I said, titles mean, you know, titles don't mean anything, but the the titles mean everything for my community. But Mm -hmm. it was the notion that you were so okay and comfortable just jumping right into, hey, Kenyani, when I introduced myself as Dr. Davis, but you didn't do that Mm -hmm. to my other counterparts. And it's those little things that going back to that social construct. And going back to that belief system and in that it, it, those are the little things, right, that make the complex. Absolutely. And, and w- when you were talking, I was just I, I'm, I was sitting here. Flashbacks. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm telling you, you know, it, just so many experiences. We need a mental health expert to help you. Oh, yes. He is a yes, mental health I expert, am. right? <laughs> well, well, therapists, you he know, get therapy. I mean, that's, therapy. you know, yeah, I'm yeah. an advocate for that. But, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, so many... You know, we started earlier talking about the impact of racism and stress, right? What Dr. Davis just was talking about, and I, and I won't, you know, speak for you, but but I was I was getting stressed out, right. reflecting <laughs> on my yeah. related experiences, Absolutely. right? And I think about, you know, I didn't do very well my first couple of years of college because um, I was young and immature and um, everything else. I know somebody like that. <laughs> <laughs> We've had that conversation. There's a third like one over right, here. Right. We didn't get into that part. But I reflected on a little bit about why that may be. <laughs> And I was experiencing um, traffic stops on a regular Mm. basis. I mean, getting pulled over, getting searched on a regular basis. In Buffalo. In Buffalo, yes. And, you know, when I reflected on that, I was thinking about, you know, I wonder why I didn't do very well my first two years. Now, now I started in economics, which I should have never did that. And that's another thing. But that's <laughs> right. another thing. We all have lessons. But I, <laughs> right. right. We all learn something. <laughs> you know, but, but I also thought to myself, you know, I, I, I kind of went back to moments where I'd be sitting in class yeah. and it would take me yeah. 30, 45 minutes just to kind of mm-hmm. take a breath mm-hmm. and, and, and be able to focus and concentrate. We, we retain, I think, 80% less information when we're under stress, right? So so I thought a lot about that and mm-hmm. and the impact that that had on me over time. All the moments yeah. where you're the only one in the room That's and it. people looking at you to answer the question about the black mm-hmm. experience and mm-hmm. all these different things. And it may not sound like a lot to someone who doesn't have that experience, but over time, it's like it's like just eating, taking pieces yeah. away at you over time. And I think... You know, when we talk about health, the health impact of that, you know, this is why some of the ways we see these health disparities is because of those everyday experiences. And that's really what cultural trauma adds. It adds the everyday experiences with these events, mm-hmm. with the social media of, of you know, they call trauma porn, like, you know, mm-hmm. putting out multiple videos of mass shootings. And, you know, I talked to people who had to watch the video of the five, four. And, and, you know, it's so there's so many things that I think. Um, that are embedded into the experiences of marginalized people and black and brown people 
that I'm also very proud of our resiliency and our power because I'm telling you, you know, we we are people that still accomplish things, that still are presidents of the United States and CMOs and and everything else. I think, you know, there's also a power in us that that we don't always see or acknowledge or recognize but it is there. So I always, I always like to, to kind of throw that onto the table as well, that we are a very accomplished people and we need to be a proud of it. And just to add to that, from a personal experience of, of the people I've had um, a chance to talk to in the last month, whether, you know, there's somebody uh, on a street corner on, on the east side in Jefferson and Glenwood or in this studio space, it does it takes me aback how there should be and would understandably be a lot of anger about what's happened here. And I know there is, Mm -hmm. but it has a certain subdued element to it that is very powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, can you follow up on that a little bit? I mean, I'm just, when I talk to people, Mm -hmm. there's an underlying anger, but to me, it just seems like it could be so much more, but yet it's. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to offer a different perspective. Please. Is that normal though? Is it normal to have to subdue your emotions? Mm. Going back to that framework of normalcy, you don't get the opportunity to be angry. I don't Mm. get the opportunity to say, you know what? I'm really mad that Mm -hmm. this white boy came into my area and shot up these black people. And I think it's racist. And I also don't think it's fair that he was able to walk out when... Other black people have been shot for less. Mm. I don't get a chance to say that, even mm. though I probably just said that. You did. Hopefully. I did. That's I said right. that, right? Mm-hmm. Do I still right. have a job? No. <laughs> I hope <laughs> I so. I know. Not, I, but, we've got a talk show. Right. I know. Right. Thanks. But all I'm saying is, do you see that tonation? Mm. You don't get a chance to say that. You but, know what? That's part of our trauma. That's part of the trauma. Because because one of the things that, and not to cut you off. No, no, no please. Sorry, please. But, you know, I think, I think that is a unique a component of the trauma of black and brown people because you know dr davis used the early example of being an angry black woman but this is also deeply rooted in things such as slavery and jim crow and segregation and all these historical events where if we did what we wanted to do in the moment right our whole family would be dead that's it right and so some of that lives in us. That's why trauma is such an intergenerational mm-hmm. component mm-hmm. of certain communities because we pass on these stories and right. we pass on these experiences. And so we've learned to kind of have that voice in our head that says, right. you don't know, do don't do it, don't, don't do, do it. it, because we may not live, right. you know, that, that, um, you know, that interaction. And that, that is so enraging. Mm hmm. Because I have to teach my children, mm-hmm. we have to teach our children about that as well. Right. That they can't, they're not safe enough to be able to express exactly how they feel whenever they feel it. And that is a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. That is a health issue. And that's going to impact, that has impacted and will impact children of color until we, until we figure this right. thing out. We are uh, talking with the Dr. Kenyani Davis, Chief Medical Officer of the Community Health Center of Buffalo, and Rasan Delane, Project Coordinator for Health Equity Community Health Center of Buffalo, and also Executive Director of Collaboration on Poverty Elimination. I want to turn it just for a little bit here in our last 10 minutes or so to this concept now. We've talked about the, the, the black woman doctor coming in and, and addressing <laughs> yeah. her patients. What about the 
black person who needs health care. I mean, I, I know, you know, talk about privilege. I know how much I don't like to seek health care. <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, right. And, you know, we'll argue whether or not I need it or not. We right. can talk about I, that. I totally understand. Uh, yeah. It's okay. <laughs> okay. But my, but my larger point is we have a, a, a huge part of, a, of mm-hmm. this community that is struggling with its health outcomes. Yeah. What, what should we be looking for? How can we help this? Right. So there's, there's two components to it. The first part is social determinants of health, and then the second part I talk a lot about is access versus connectivity. So the first part is social determinants of health for what people don't know is the 80% of the totality of your health is made up by your social determinants of health is where you work, where you live, where you play. So that means your built environments, financial security, education, those types of things, those are the most important things for health. My stethoscope really only does 10% of it. The other 10% of it, your mommy or dad gave you, which is genetics. Okay. So, but think about how much we talk about healthcare and how much mm. we, you know, I mean, we've split political parties on healthcare. That's only 20%. The other 80% is in urban development, redoing the education system, you know, um, unfair, unfair uh, practices, uh, policies that are not apolitical, social policing, mm. all of that. That's health. That is health, not what I do. The second, the second part is access versus connectivity. So Dr. Williams from Harvard, like uh, Rasan was talking about, has done a lot of work on concordance. So what we do know is we do know that minority physicians and other minorities' outcomes are better when they care for each other because part of it, it goes back to what Rasan said. It's the unspoken thing. So when my patients come in, they don't have to explain to me how the microaggressions made them feel or how they need to take a mental health day or how they need FMLA because their anxiety or their stress is up because of some unfair practices at work. So this is not about access, about building buildings and people will come. It's about connectivity, which is what we do at CHCB. Connectivity means you're having real connections with people. And that only happens by working side by side with people in the community. I ran into one of the... um, one of our patients, which is one of the top associates, and one of the tops in my neighborhood. And we stopped and talked. It meant everything. When I do these radio interviews or they see me on TV, they're like, man, that's my doctor. That gives them mm. a sense of connection and access. That's what we need to start doing for community medicine and for minority medicine. Stop with the pretty buildings. <laughs> Stop. It's about connectivity. It's about creating true connections with people. That's a in in that's an excellent going back to um, when we were talking about risk earlier, mm-hmm. you know the pretty build. I I love that. That is so important. Are they so pretty? They are. They're so pretty because you know if you follow you know social media or Buffalo yes. Business First or you know I mean this not for profit space. You know folks are trying to survive, right? Mm-hmm. They're trying to keep their organizations thriving and and whatnot. But one of the things that I that I notice. Is just that mm-hmm. that there's that there's a lot of attention to expansion, growth, and development. Mm-hmm. Um, my question is, who does that benefit, <laughs> right. and where where are the health outcomes impacted for Black and Brown folks and other marginalized populations? And so, I think you know what we do at CACB is really important because you know we we can treat the whole person. Right. That's that's part of the mission of our organization, regardless of anyone's ability to pay. We also are very connected to community based Mm -hmm. organizations. So instead of kind of thinking so much about expansion, we think about what's already existing in our community that has measurable impacts and Mm -hmm. outcomes that we can build partnerships that directly impact 
communities of color and other communities in in Buffalo. And I think that that is where the uniqueness of a health center as ours comes in is because that's our center. That's that's what we're our mission is. Rasan, I, w- I wanted to also follow up on I, you have uh, on your uh, LinkedIn page, you have uh, some uh, leadership principles. And I wanted to yes. touch upon one uh, or two of them here, but uh, one critical and intentional self-storying and um, counter-storying. Yes. Please expand on that because it's a it's a fascinating yeah. concept on, on as it stands on its own. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a, a bad word or a bad concept. <laughs> Critical race theory. Oh, so um, bad boy. Right. So so my my I'm completing my doctorate in counseling and counselor education, and my focus is on multiculturalism and social justice. So my training has been in theoretical concepts such as critical race theory. And um, one of the tenets of it is counter-storing, which essentially is this idea that for particularly black folks, that there's been a dominant narrative, essentially a white supremacist dominant narrative that has explained our experience or driven our, um, um, I guess, our, our lives in a U.S. sense of the word. And so what counter-storing is, is it gives black people and brown people and other marginalized folks, particularly black people, the opportunity to tell our own stories from our own experience, because our experiences are are socially constructed, right? They're in, in interaction with each other. And so when we tell our own stories, it's therapeutic, it's restorative, um, it allows us some psychological sort of uh, relief because we get to say, no, this is this is what it means to be me, mm-hmm. not what you believe it to be me. Yeah. So as a leadership principle, I'm intentional about thinking about not replicating any dominant narratives that I may even carry um, and allowing people to tell their own stories. And that's important, you know, to me as a as a leader is to really give space to listen and to allow people not allow people, but but. Um, you know, really listen to what people have to say. And I think that's that's really why that is important to me as a leader. All right. Now, we're winding down on time here. So I told you it was going to go fast. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It went so fast. <laughs> but I do want to just uh, I'll, I'll start with Dr. Davis and uh, maybe we'll uh, put it back over to Rasan. 30 seconds or so. Yeah. Do you find any hope in what we're seeing here in the last m- month, month and a half here in Buffalo? Absolutely. I tend to be a hopeless romantic at heart. Um, but the fact that we're even having this conversation so raw, so open, mm-hmm. I think is a step in the right direction. And it's something that needed to happen for a really long time. And I, I do think that people um, of other races are willing to listen now. So I charge my African-American community with what is your ask now? What do you, what, what is your ask? Mm-hmm. And then I charge my, my non-black community to say it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to listen. But once again, accepting a position of neutrality is not helpful. Being fair-weathered is not helpful. <laughs> Pick a side. <laughs> Pick a side. Rasan, you get the final word. I, I couldn't have said that any, any better. I, I, I agree. It is about action. Um, it is about taking risks, as we talked about earlier. And it is about thinking more about the other as opposed to yourself. And I think the other, we've outlined exactly who those others are. Mm-hmm. And so if if folks are willing to do that, then we'll continue to move in the right in the right direction. I, I believe that. 
Our guest, Dr. Kenyani Davis, Chief Medical Officer, Community Health Center of Buffalo, Rasan Delane, Project Coordinator for Health Equity and with the Collaboration on Poverty Elimination, is Executive Director there. Look him up on LinkedIn. You'll enjoy his leadership principles, I think. <laughs> this has been Buffalo What's Next. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who's been listening today on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.